jump straight to the audiobook, just proceed to five minutes into the track. So perhaps you have noticed that we've got different introductory music here again. This is the same music that we use to introduce Patrick McDonald's collection stuff when we were doing audiobook uh, episodes, and that's sort of what this one is too. Uh, rather than one source, this is going to be two different essays that were attached to uh, the beginning of some really lovely collections of tunes. One called The Caledonian Muse, and then shortly uh, published shortly after The Caledonian Muse came The Hibernian Muse, supposedly in the same year, in the 1790s at some point. Um, the essays are interesting. Um, the Caledonian one lifts um, a lot is just kind of long extended quotes from Patrick McDonald's, but there is some original stuff too. Uh, the Hibernian Muse one is a little bit more uh, new to me anyway, and there's a kind of essay on Carolyn's life that's fairly interesting. Um, but yeah, primary sources are always somewhat stimulating and interesting to read for me, and especially once I talk about music, to give, even if they might be wrong about kind of the ancient origins of music, reading 1790 accounts of kind of what they talked about as the ancient origins of the music and uh, musicians is always interesting to me. So anyway, remember, you do have homework uh, for this assignment, if you want, on October 27th, which is a Wednesday uh, at around 7 at seven p.m. Central Time. I'm going to be doing kind of a Zoom hangout. So by the time this episode goes live, I'll post it to my Patreon feed a little bit earlier. So um, the episode will go live Friday at midnight, and by then I'll have the Facebook kind of event set up. Um, and it, just like last time, you know, RSVP if you're interested, and if you're interested, I'll send you a Zoom link so you can come and join us, and I might post the Zoom link right as the time that we're getting going to. I'm not quite sure. Last time I didn't. I was worried about Zoom bombing and honestly a little worried about getting in trouble for hosting it, um, but I think we're going to be all right. Anyway, so send me an email, uh, waytotwog at gmail.com. If you are not on any of that social media stuff and you'd like to participate in the discussion, I'd be happy to have you. Um, yeah, so we're going to listen to me read these two accounts. The Caledonian Muse one, I'm not too worried about. The Hibernian Muse one, there's quite a bit more like Irish pronunciation that I did my best with, but I'm sure there's some errors. If you talk about any of this stuff um, in a professional setting, I highly recommend uh, double-checking my pronunciations if you're using what I'm saying to, to, to talk about it. Um, but yeah, so we're going to listen to these two just back-to-back, -back, the Caledonian Muse and the Hibernian Muse, and then I'll play a couple uh, selections from the both of those collections at the end of that. I think we're going to do some of the border tunes that they talk about in Caledonian Muse, and at least one Carolyn tune, and probably the Coolin? I'm not quite sure yet, um, from the Hibernian Muse collection. Anyway, so hope you enjoy it, and like I said, hope as many people as possible can come and hang out and chat about these tunes. The goal for the discussion is going to be to you know, chat about the essays is fair game. Um, for people that are kind of keen musicians, I hope you'll look through the collection of tunes and maybe find some that you want to play and talk about. Um, or, yeah, yeah, that that's that's what I want. <laughs> and then, uh, and then yeah, we'll do a, a follow up episode, maybe sharing some of the stuff that y'all said, or maybe bug some people for recordings if they have some good versions of tunes. But just hang out for about an hour, have some have some tunes have some chat have some whiskey maybe um yeah so that'll be last wednesday in october so come and check us out i don't think we're going to have another episode next week i think we'll have 
bit of a lull until uh, putting out a Halloween episode, which I have not been working on as much as I assumed I was going to be. So we'll see. That that one might be pretty short-lived. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Anyway, cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy these audiobooks. The Caledonian Muse, a collection of scarce and favorite Scots tunes, both Highland and Lowland, vis-a-vis songs, lunigs, laments, reels, trespays, measures, jigs, etc., properly adapted for the violin, German flute, harpsichord, and pianoforte, to which is prefixed an essay on Scots music. Price five shillings, London, printed for the editors at their warehouse, number 75, St. Paul's Churchyard. An essay on the Scots music. As most national music, and in particular that of the Scots, originated with the bards, the present essay may not improperly commence with some enquiry into the origin and employment of an order of men, once so famous both in Europe and other countries. The bards may be traced to Greece, and as high as the time of Homer, to whom, in a lack sense at least, the character may be applied. They probably received their origin among some of the eastern nations, and might derive their office from that of the Hebrew prophets, whom they strongly resembled. During many ages, these were the chief cultivators of poetry, heraldry, and music, particularly among the Celtae, a great and powerful nation which once flourished in the west of Europe. From these, whether immediately or by the medium of Ireland, is of no consequence to our present inquiries, uh, the Scots themselves originated as did likewise their music, their poetry, and their bards. These being spared by general consent on the introduction of Christianity, while the Druids, on whom they had been dependent, sunk with the superstitions and idolatries which they were connected. In the Highlands, where the most ancient Scottish music has been preserved, every chief formerly maintained a bard in his family, whose principal business was to celebrate, in lyric strains, his patron's heroism and the exploits of his ancestors. They generally expressed themselves with the ardor of enthusiasm and often rose to the sublime. These bards were not regarded with the contempt that modern times have bestowed upon their successors, but raised to the highest honors, and particularly employed embassies of peace, their persons being esteemed sacred. Kabar feared, says Ossian, to stretch forth his sword to the bards, though his soul was dark. Loose the bards, said his brother Cathmore. They are the sons of other times. Their voice shall be heard in other ages when the kings of Tamora have failed. Another considerable part of their office was to celebrate their deceased patrons, and of such consequence were their elegiac compositions imagined to be to the departed ghosts that those who were so unhappy as to die without this honorable attention were supposed to wander in the thick mist before the reedy lake. In succeeding ages, these domestic poets and musicians very much declined both in character and respect. Among the various reasons which have been assigned for this event, one of the most considerable seems to have been the revival of literature, for book-learning, as an ingenious writer observes, has ever proved fatal to unlettered poets. Although the bagpipe is now the favorite instrument of the Highlanders, it does not appear to have been always so. Geraldus Cambrenus speaks of the harp 
as used in this country as well as in Ireland and Wales, and writers of superior credit and antiquity describe the harp as the instrument of the most ancient bards. Ossian also, if his testimony may be admitted, says beneath his own tree, at intervals, each bard sat down with his harp. They raised the song and touched the string, each to the chief he loved. The last performer of this instrument in the Hebrides was one Morrison or Dahl, who, in the close of the last century, acted as bard to the Laird of MacLeod of Dunvegan Castle, and, like Demodocus of old, was blind. To the harp succeeded the bagpipe, which, though not of equal, is certainly a very high antiquity among the northern nations. It is not mentioned in Ossian, but it is supposed to be intended in some ancient northern songs by the appellation of the sockpipe. This instrument, as the harp had been before, was used to accompany the Koranach, or dirge, in which formerly the deceased was wont to be addressed in broken extemporary verses, a practice not yet entirely disused among the Irish. Many learned men have supposed a great part of the old Scottish music and even their bards derived immediately from Ireland, and that King James I of Scotland, who is reigned in the 15th century, both introduced and naturalized them. It is certain that he was a poet and musician, uh, particularly a harper, and there is still extant an ancient musical treatise ascribed to him. An old writer calls him another Orpheus, and exceeded both the Highlanders and the Irish, the best harpers of their time. Buchanan thought him more of a musician than a king ought to be, and indeed it must be confessed that few princes who have endeavored to distinguish, distinguish themselves as practical musicians have been equally eminent as good kings. But his musical fame reached to Italy, for Tassioni, a celebrated writer of that country, mentions him as the inventor of a new species of plaintive melody. James V was another musical prince, and the reputed author of some songs still in being. One of them was composed, it is said, on occasion of his having an amour with the daughter of a highland cottager, as he was strolling in disguise about the country. This prince's fame likewise extended to Italy, and he is celebrated by the elegant Rista under the name of Zebrino. David Rizzio, the unhappy Italian secretary of Mary Queen of Scots, has been formally asserted to have much refined and somewhat Italianized many of the Scottish tunes, but the fact has been of late disputed, and with apparent reason. There are a few favorite Scots tunes which tradition ascribes to him, perhaps with more truth. Barsanti, however, another Italian who visited North Britain in the present century, collected and made bases to a number of favorite Scottish airs which at the same time he might probably modernize and refine, if not improve. It is certainly a very curious fact that the sister arts of poetry and music should be so much admired and cultivated as they have been in many nations considered as barbarous and uncivilized, but it is equally true, and these arts have, in a greater or less degree, contributed to civilize and humanize those very nations. This is particularly remarkable as to the Arcadians, who were naturally very fierce and barbarous, till softened by the power of music, which they made an essential part of education. But the Sanathians, a branch of the same stock, neglecting this cultivation, were the most ungovernable and ferocious subjects Greece had. The wonderful stories related of Amphion and Orpheus are, by the soberer critics, supposed to mean no more than that, 
By the union of music and poetry, they civilized the first barbarous inhabitants of Greece, reconciled them to live in society, and cultivated the useful and domestic arts. Policy was not, however, the only motive in cultivation of music among rude nations. In the early stages, many of them tended flocks or herds, and their method of life admitting much leisure, they naturally sought to fill it up by amusements agreeable thereto, of which music and poetry were the chief. This was remarkably the case of the Arcadians above mentioned, and so partial were they to soft and pastoral strains that even in war, like the Lacedaemonians and some others, they used no musical instruments but flutes. Others, whose manners were less softened, were more addicted to hunting and petty wars, and this disposition would necessarily affect both their poetry and music, employing a different set of images in the former, and in the latter accents more wild and masculine. These remarks are particularly applicable to the ancient Highlanders, who borrow most of their poetic images from the battle or the chase, and their poems are full of ideas of self-importance and ambition, the great incentives to war and rapine. Self-complacent and ferocious as the ideas of a barbarian chief may be, an uncivilized state is always attended with a certain degree of gloom and melancholy. Man was born for society and cannot be happy in solitude, and to this, that the hunter is not always successful, and few warriors are constantly victorious. These reflections, with the constant use of music and funeral obsequies, obsequies, will sufficiently account for the plaintive and melancholic tincture of a great proportion of ancient music, which has an effect analogous to music in the minor mode, though strictly speaking, the present doctrine of modes and keys is entirely modern, and few very ancient airs can be thoroughly accommodated to it. In tunes apparently minor, the seventh was not sharped, uh, even when sometimes the sixth was, and the air was permitted to modulate from key to key, to speak in modern terms, with scarce any other laws than that of the composer's ear. Sometimes a very short air appears to conclude in a different mode from what it begins in and at others, concludes, in the harmony of the fourth or fifth of the key, instead of that of the key itself. One of the most obvious peculiarities of Scottish music is the affected omission of certain notes in the scale, particularly the fourth and the seventh, and almost any other interval. This has been accounted for from the supposed contractedness of ancient instruments. It seems, however, too great a beauty to ascribe to such a cause. And it is singular enough that the same peculiarity is not only to be observed in some Irish airs, but even in the Chinese music, and Dr. Burney has conjectured from a curious passage in Plutarch's dialogues that this was the original and harmonic scale of the Greeks. No nation has ever applied to music to a greater variety of useful purposes than the Scots, particularly in the Highlands. The animation they receive from the bagpipe is notorious, and confirmed by a modern instance, little short of and better authenticated than the wonderful stories of the ancient music. At the Battle of Quebec, 1760, whilst the British troops were retreating in confusion, the general complained to a field officer of Fraser's regiment of the bad behavior of his corps. Sir, answered he, with some warmth, you did very wrong in forbidding the pipers to play this morning. Nothing encourages Highlanders so much in a day of action, nay, even now, they would be of use. 
The experiment was tried, and immediately on hearing their national music, they returned and formed with great alacrity in the rear. The modern Highlanders, as the Greeks of old, accompany almost every kind of work with music. These songs used in the Hebrides and on the western coasts are called lunics. They are generally very short and plaintive. They are sung by the women, not only at their diversions, but during almost every kind of work, and where more than one person is employed as milking cows, watching the folds, fulling of cloth, grinding of grain with the kern, or hand mill, uh, haymaking, and cutting down corn. At Rosse, Dr. Johnson found the women reaping, as is their custom, while the men bind up their sheaves, and the strokes of the fixicle were timed by the motion of the harvest song in which all of their voices were united. The men, too, have their jorums, or songs for rowing, to which they keep time with their oars, as the women likewise do when the operations admit of it. When the same airs are sung in the hours of relaxation, the time is marked by the motion of a napkin, which all the performers lay hold of. In singing, one person leads the band, but in a certain part of the tune he stops to take a breath, while the rest strike in and complete the air, pronouncing to it a chorus of words and syllables generally of no signification. They are likewise very fond of the bagpipe to accompany their meals, and the visitant of a highland chief is commonly entertained with some national airs while he sits at meat. There is something peculiar in the music of the St. Kildians, though their only musical instrument is one of the most contemptible in being, vis-a-vis -vis the Jaws harp. The muses of St. Kilda are as simple as its inhabitants. At the conclusion of the fishing season, when the winter's store of the, high, the little commonwealth is safely deposited in a house called the Tigabara, its whole members resort thither as being the most spacious room in their dominions, and hold a solemn assembly. There they sing with gratitude and joy one of their best real airs, to words importing what more would we have? There is a store of cuddies and faith and perch and alochen laid up for us in this Tigabara. There is also a beautiful simplicity in the poetry of this island, of which the following specimen may not be unacceptable, it being the elegy of a young woman of St. Kilda, who had lost her husband by a fall from the rocks, an accident not unfrequent in catching the wild fowl of those parts. And yonder foam left I the youth whom I loved, but lately he skipped and bounded from rock to rock. Dexterous was he in making every instrument the farm required, diligent in bringing home my tender flocks. You went, O oh my love, upon yon hanging cliff, but fear measured not thy steps. Thy foot only slipped, and you fell never more to rise. Thy blood stained yon slopping rocks. Thy brains lay scattered all around, all thy wounds gushed at once, floating on the surface of the deep. The cruel waves tore thee asunder. Thy mother came, her gray hairs uncovered with the kerch. Thy sister came, we mourned together. Thy brother came, he lessened not the cry of sorrow. Gloomy and sad, we all beheld thee from afar. O oh, thou that was the sevenfold blessing of thy friends, the shiny eon of their support. Now, alas, my share of the birds is heard screaming in the clouds. My share of the eggs is already seized on by the stronger party. And yonder so left I the youth whom I loved. Among the lowland Scots tunes, some of the most ancient are number 2, 8, 18, 
41, 58, and 75. Of the former of these, Sir J. Hawkins relates the following anecdote. Queen Mary, consort of William III, having a mind one afternoon to be entertained with music, sent for Mr. Gosling, a gentleman of her chapel, Mrs. Arabella Hunt, who had a fine voice, and Mr. H. Purcell. And after they had performed several compositions of the latter, Her Majesty, growing weary, asked Mrs. Hunt to sing the old Scots ballad of Cold and Raw, which she did, and accompanied herself upon the lute. But to the mortification of Parcell, who sat at the harpsichord unemployed, and to let Her Majesty know that he remembered it, he made the error of this tune the bass to a movement in his next birthday ode. There is considerable difficulty in adjusting the more ancient tunes. Frequently, among several copies, all written by the natives, no two were found perfectly alike, and it was not always easy to ascertain the most genuine. Some tunes originally composed to the harp may have been considerably altered to suit the bagpipe. Others may have been dabbled with by modern musicians, who have perhaps not always improved so much as they have altered them. With regard to the performances of the following airs, it may not be impertinent to observe that they will produce the best effect on those instruments most capable of expression. Such are the violin, German flute, and pianoforte. In the performance of the national music, and in particular the Scottish, there are some peculiarities which can hardly be expressed in notes, nor must the time be too strictly adhered to. Since, in all probability, the original authors of the more ancient airs knew no more of our laws of time than of harmony. To relish the beauties of this kind of music, it is necessary to enter into the spirit of it, and nothing can more contribute to this than the hearing it performed by the natives, who are generally enthusiastically attached to it. The little grace notes, however, which are mostly to be performed with rapidity, may be of service to assist a stranger. The stress bass, it should be remembered, must be played considerably slower than other reels. It need hardly be added that the basses are modern, many of them the composition of the first masters of the present age, and some of the airs which never appeared with any kind of accompaniment before were with difficulty made to submit to any and often but a total defiance to modern rules. Should the present work meet with public encouragement, it is supposed to be succeeded by a similar collection of Irish and other national airs, a work which, when complete, may not only entertain the lovers of music and gratify inquirers into the early state of the history of that elegant art, but, from the analogy constantly to be observed between the original manners of a people and their native music afford useful hints to persons engaged in more serious and philosophical studies. The Hibernian Muse, a collection of Irish airs, including the most favorite compositions of Carolyn, the celebrated Irish bard, to which is prefixed an essay on Irish music with memoirs of Carolyn. Price five shillings, London, printed for S.A. and P. Thompson, number 75, St. Paul's Churchyard, where may be had the Caledonian Muse, a collection of Scotch airs, reels, etc., also five shillings. An Essay on Irish Music You too, 
ye bards whom sacred raptures fire, to chant your heroes to your country's lyre, who consecrate in your immortal strain brave patriot souls in righteous battle slain. Securely now the tuneful task renew, and nobler themes and deathless songs pursue. Lucan. The early ages of every nation are enveloped in dark clouds impervious to the rays of historic light. An attempt, therefore, says an ingenious writer, to trace the arts of poetry and music to their source in this or in any other country must be unsuccessful. They are coeval with its original inhabitants, for man is both poet and musician by nature. But our business with those arts does not commence till an order of men, who for some time united both characters, appears in the annals of Ireland. Irish historians trace their music and bards to a very high antiquity. Whence they were derived is indeed not quite so certain, but it is commonly supposed that the Irish received them from the Milesians, and the Milesians from some parts of the East. It is certain the Druids and Bards had colleges in Ireland prior to the 5th century. The Bards originally received their education from the Druids, who were the priests of those times, whose laws and sciences were conveyed through the medium of poetry and recommended by the charms of music. Their instructions, however, were always oral, neither their policy nor their superstition at the time suffering them to be committed to writing, so that the education of a young Bard was seldom completed under a dozen years. These accomplished, he was honored with a kind of doctor's degree called Olam, supposed sufficiently quality for all those duties of his office, and sometimes admitted among the Druids. At this early period, the bards, originally a single order of men, were divided into the following classes. The philia, or poet, whose office it was to turn the precepts of religion into verse, to compose birthday odes, epithalamiums, marital odes, etc., to teach their princes, to entertain the chieftains and their guests at public festivals, to animate the army and raise the cry of war, to plod the valiant and base control, disturb, exalt, enchant the human soul. The Brehon, or legislative bard, not only made and administered the laws, but it was his duty to chant them to his harp, as he was seated on an eminence in the open air. Lashonica was antiquarian, genealogist, and historian. He recorded remarkable events and preserved the genealogy of his patron. Beside the above, there is an inferior order, called the Oyersidi, or instrumental performers, who were further distinguished by the instruments on which they played. Mekivene, or funeral song, was a solemn ceremony which accompanied the interment of their chiefs. On this occasion, the officiating druid, having performed the religious rites, and the pedigree of the deceased having been recited by his shanaka, the proper bard sang the kine, which he accompanied with his harp, being assisted by a chorus of inferior bards and minstrels, and sometimes a company of women. The following extract from one of these elegies, composed on the death of Cucullin, may give an idea of the natural sublimity of these compositions, and will not, it is presumed, be unacceptable to readers of taste and sensibility. By the dark, rolling waves of Lego, they raise the hero's tomb. Luath at a distance lies, the companion of Kukulun at the chase. Blessed be thy soul, son of Samo, thou art mighty in battle. Thy strength was like the strength of a stream, thy speed like the eagle's wing. Thy path in the battle was terrible, the steps of death were behind thy sword. Blessed be thy soul, son of Samo, car-born chief of Dunskayak. Thou hast not fallen, 
by the sword of the mighty. Neither was thy blood on the spear of the valiant. The arrow came like the sting of death in a blast. Nor did the feeble hand which drew the bow perceive it. Peace to thy soul in thy cave, chief of the Isle of Mist. On the establishment of Christianity, the Druids, of course, vanished, but the bards remained, and some of them, being converted, sung hymns to the honor of God and his saints. One of these, at least, Fack, was made a bishop by St. Patrick in the 5th century, and several others of them commenced clergymen. From this time, music greatly flourished in the Irish churches, insomuch that in the 10th century, the Abbey of Mungret, near Limerick, out of 1,500 religious, had 500 choristers. About this time, the clergy introduced the accentual characters of the Romish church, the Irish not appearing to have had any method of musical notation of their own. Formerly, great part of the Irish music was military, and every chief had his peculiar war cry. It has been also supposed that the various invasions to which these people were subject first gave a melancholic tincture to their music, and introduced among them the minor mode. This arises, however, from an idea that these music, that the music of all countries was originally major, and I, an hypothesis that will admit of debate, and it is to be added that solitude and various other circumstances might produce the same effects. The ancient musical instruments of the Irish have furnished matter of curious inquiry. The principal were the harp and the bagpipe. Of the former, they had four varieties, differing in size, from, and number of strings. Indeed, this seems to have been the favorite instrument of many northern nations, and has been supposed to have originated among them. The Irish probably had it from the Milesians, and conveyed it to the Highlanders and Welsh. But it was also well known in the East. Mr. Bruce describes the painting of several he met uh, in the ruins of ancient Thebes. But we know from better authority that it was at a very early period the favorite of the Hebrews. The bagpipe, indeed, was probably a northern instrument, yet not exclusively so, since we find an instrument of this kind among the Greeks, Chinese, and several other nations. Of this instrument, there are also varieties. The large war bagpipe is peculiar to the Highlanders, and well calculated to animate their warlike and ferocious temper, but the Irish bagpipe is smaller, blown by the mouth, and capable of great sweetness and expression. Among the vocal music of the Irish, a stranger would not expect much excellency on account of the apparent harshness of the language. There are not wanting, however, advocate for this, who assert, strange as it may seem, that the Irish is more musical than even the Italian or any other European language. The style of the ancient Irish music is said by their early writers to have been enharmonic, if so, it must be in the same sense that Dr. Burney explains the term in relation to the old enharmonic of the Greeks, i.e. without semitones. The Irish music is in some degree, says a native, distinguished from the music of every other nation by an insinuating sweetness which forces its way irresistibly to the heart, abating something for national partiality, a degree of excellence must be allowed to the plaintive airs, and a wonderful glee and vivacity to the jigs. We have hinted on a former occasion that the Scots probably derived a great part of their music from the Irish, and there is reason to think that the Welsh were indebted to the same masters. But to return to our narrative, at the revival of literature, the bards were reduced to two classes, historians and rhapsodists, from which last the modern bards were derived. One of these, O'Carroll, 
flourished with the school of pupils in the year 1340. Our Henry VIII, in compliment to the musical fame of Ireland, gave them a harp for their arms, and James I quartered it with those of France and England. Several famous bards flourished in the reign of Elizabeth, but as we know not that any of their music is preserved, it would afford little entertainment to recite their names. The present century has produced some eminent bards. Cormac Common, or Cormac Dahl, i.e. Blind Cormac, was born May 1703 in the county of Mayo of poor parents, and within the first year had the misfortune to lose his sight by the smallpox. He is celebrated for being the last of the tale-tellers, and recited his melancholy narrative much in the manner of cathedral chaunting. He was a poet, a harper, and when young, a fine singer, and was lately at the age of more than fourscore, living near Dunmore in the county of Galway. But the most eminent of all modern bards was the famous Carolan, author of a great part of the tunes in the following collection, who therefore claims our particular attention. Turlock O'Carolan was born at Nauber, in the county of Westmeath, A.D. 1670, on a spot denominated from his ancestor, though it has been several ages in other hands. Smallpox, at a very early period, deprived him of his eyesight, and, quote, knowledge at one entrance quite shut out, end quote. But Providence, as in many similar instances, in some degree compensated for his loss by bestowing on him a fine ear and a taste for music, so that, as himself used quaintly to express it, his eyes were transplanted into his ears. Our bard discovered early marks of a musical genius, and at twelve years old he had an instructor for the harp, but, as often happens, his diligence not keeping pace with his genius, he never excelled as an instrumental performer, and seldom used his instrument but in extempore effusions, or as an accompaniment to his voice, and even this office was frequently supplied by a domestic. Blindness is no certain defense against love. Carolyn found this, for pretty early in life he became enamored with a Miss Bridget Cruz, which is said to have first tuned his harp to love, though in this instance his love was unsuccessful. An incident with reference to this lady is related, for which shows that the loss of one sense may be to the perfection of several others. Our bard's blindness was not only compensated by an ear nicely tuned to harmony, but by an exquisite sensibility and feeling. In a subsequent part of life, being induced by the superstition of that religion in which he had been educated, and to which he always tenaciously adhered, he made a pilgrimage to a celebrated cave called St. Patrick's Purgatory, situated on an island in the county of Donegal. Handing some pilgrims into the boat, he chanced to take the hand of the above lady, and instantly exclaimed, This is the hand of Bridget Cruz, a circumstance that awakened in full vigor the recollection of his early attachment. Carolyn's want of success with the first object of his attachment did not cool his passion for the fair sex, and the loss of Miss Cruz was supplied in the embraces of a Miss Mary Maguire, a young lady of good family, though not remarkable for meekness or economy, at this time, it is supposed, he took a small farm near Moss Hill, in a country, county of Leitrim, and erected a little house, where himself and Lady enjoyed themselves and entertained their friends, till, in the sequel, they discovered that neither his genius nor her beauty were sufficient to keep open doors, or supply their table even with the necessaries, and much less the luxuries of life. This was probably one circumstance that induced Caroline to 
commenced itinerant bard and exhibited genuine representation of Homer's Demodocus. He traveled the country on his own horse, attended by a domestic harper. The doors of the nobility and gentry were everywhere thrown open for his entertainment. He scorned to compose for hire, but his constant custom was to reward his benefactor with a song made of, on himself for a principal branch of his family. Some of the most celebrated of these, and distinguished by the name of the subject, were composed on Jones, Esquire of Money Glass in the country of Leitrim, J. Nugent, Esquire of Castle Nugent, Columber, Columber, and his fair sister, Miss Grace Nugent, all which can be found in the following collection. The occasion of several other of his compositions is remarkable. Tradition says that O'Rourke, a powerful and turbulent Irish chieftain, was invited by the politic Elizabeth, Queen of England, on a visit to her court. Before he left his native country, he assembled all his vassals and neighbors, and gave them a sumptuous treat at his castle. This event, Mr. McGarren, a gentleman of Leitrim, who possessed a happy talent at ludicrous poetry, made the subject of a song, which Carolyn, his contemporary and friend, set to music. And Placura Rorach, or O'Rourke's Feast, has left a monument to their joint memory. A Miss Featherton, a Protestant lady of the county of Longford, Going to church one Sunday, met with Carolyn going to Mass. She gave him an invitation to her house, but the bard, with his usual gallantry, excused himself with a pretended terror of her wit. At parting, she requested his prayers, but he protested she was the object of his devotion, and accordingly, instead of praying, composed the song which he called Carolyn's Devotion. Carolyn, unhappily for his health and character, was immoderately given to whiskey, and always treated his muse with a glass when he invoked her. Once, at the earnest remonstrance of his medical friends, he refrained six weeks from his favorite liquor, during which his usual gaiety and genius forsook him. At length, unable to contain any longer, he procured a glass of it to smell. Immediately, as the fumes reached his head, his countenance brightened, his vivacity rekindled, and he could no longer resist the bewitching draught. Before morning, he composed the charming song of Carolyn's receipt. As to treat the bard was a certain method of inspiring his muse. So to deny the exhilarating draught was equally sure to attract his satire. One O'Flynn, the careful butler of a certain parsimonious lady, whom he then visited, once refusing him admittance to his cellar, procured himself a severe epigram, of which the following is a translation. What a pity Hell's gates are not kept by O'Flynn. So surly a dog would let nobody in. The ancient bards, we have observed, often pretended to prophecy, and that our bard might not be thought inferior to any of them, the following story is related of him. Having often tried to compose a planksty for Miss Brett of the county of Sligo, but never to his satisfaction, he one day threw away his harp with his declaration to his mother, some evil genius that he hovers over me. There is not a string in my harp that does not vibrate a melancholy sound. I fear she is not doomed to remain long amongst us. Nay, said he emphatically, she will not survive twelve months. The event is said to have verified the prediction. 
but what inferences are to be drawn from this and similar narrations must be left to the cool investigation of philosophy. It is reported that when Gimignani was at Dublin, he had the curiosity to try the genius of Caroline by procuring a piece of Italian music to be played to him, excellent in itself, but purposely vitiated in certain places. Caroline was delighted with the music, but much to the surprise of the hearers, discovered and even rectified its defects. At another time, it is said, meeting with a musician of some eminence at the house of an Irish nobleman, he challenged him to a trial of skill. The musician played Vivaldi's fifth concerto on his violin. This finished, Caroline, with wonderful exactness, repeated it on this harp, though he had never before heard it, and to increase the surprise of his auditory, added another concerto of his own, extemporary, in which he copied the taste of the Italian composer in a manner quite astonishing. It has been observed above that Carolyn was a Roman Catholic, and it should be added that he composed several pieces of sacred music, which, with great devotion, he performed in the public service to the astonishment of, his of the congregation. In the year 1733, Carolyn lost his beloved Mary Maguire, who had lived faithfully in obscure retirement with her children while our Irish Orpheus traveled the country. This event threw a gloom upon his mind, and is thought to have hastened his death, which happened in March of 1738, at the house of Mrs. Macdermott of Alderford. Dr. Goldsmith relates, upon, upon what authority is uncertain, that even in the article of death he called for a draft of his beloved liquor, which being brought at his earnest importunity, he was not able to swallow, and returned it with this unseasonable jest, that it would be hard indeed for two such friends as he and his cup to part without kissing, and then expired. Carolyn was buried in the churchyard of Kilronan, in the diocese of Arda where his skull was lately observed rudely scattered among the spoils of death, and distinguished from the vulgar multitude by a ribboned appended thereto, a circumstance this which would have animated the genius of a York to the highest pitch of elegant enthusiasm. Our bard was lamented in a humble elegy written by his facetious friend and companion, Charles McCabe, but which has no merit to excite the reader's curiosity. Carolyn left six daughters and a son. The latter taught the Irish harp and published a collection of his father's pieces, the most favorite of which, with several others therein omitted, will be found in the following collection, to the number of more than thirty. The public opinion of Carolyn's merit and the esteem in which he is held by the most eminent professors may be inferred from the insertion of so many of his pieces in our modern operas and entertainments. Before we conclude this essay, the reader may expect some information as to other airs which form this collection. Many of them, indeed, are well known, and have long been favorites with the public, but of some others, there are a few particulars too curious to be withheld. The Dump, or Melancholy Tune, number two, is said to have been sung by the Irish women on the field of battle after a terrible slaughter made by Cromwell's troops in Ireland. Number 54 was composed in the reign of Henry VIII, the original words being in honor of the ancient Irish dress. 
Number 91 is commonly sung by the Irish rustics at the plough. Number 9 and 29 and several others are remarkable for their high antiquity as well as beautiful simplicity. It need only be added that great pains have been taken to make the bases as familiar and pleasing as circumstances would admit. Several of the airs have never appeared with any accompaniment before, and many of them would not admit a strict conformity to modern rules. This may be proper to be observed that the editor may may not be condemned for violating rules which could not be conformed to with propriety, and to which no experienced musician would attempt to reduce airs composed before the laws of harmony were known. Finis. Alright, that's interesting stuff. Okay, so we're going to play eight tunes. Let's see if we can get through them fairly quickly. All of these tunes, uh, just about many of them are just huge, could have whole episodes about them. Uh, we're going to do them in order of, you know, which collection first. We'll do Caledonian Muse first, since it was published first. And we're going to begin with a tune that I, I really enjoy, but I couldn't find another name for it. I couldn't find how to pronounce it. I don't know what this name means. Um, so if anybody can clue me into it, I'd love to hear more information on it. Uh, near as I can tell, it is pronounced Pesa-Pathar, P-O-S-O-D-H-P-E-A-T-H-A-R, but it works really well on Highland Pipes. Next here is Moorland Willie. This is one of the tunes that uh, the essay says is an ancient lowland tune.
All right, and another one of these ancient lowland tunes. This is uh, He Horpled Till Her, or He Hobbled Towards Her. So obviously I miss having border pipes, but it's kind of been nice to be hanging out with the small pipes again. I didn't realize quite how much I've been neglecting them. Uh, all right, and now the final tune from Caledonian Muse is Polworth Green. Um, one of the things I really like about these collections is it focuses a lot on stage music, uh, which really seems to have been largely the popular music of the day. It was stuff that you could see in the theater. So anyway, Polworth Green, uh, this is a tune that shows up in uh, Alan Ramsey's Gentle Shepherd. Switching over to the Hibernian Muse, let's start with the Carolyn tune. This is Carolyn's Receipt, also known as Carolyn's Receipt for Drinking Whiskey, generally. Um, the notes here says, in the castle of Andalusia. I'm not sure if that means, like, where he was drinking, or um, if that's a play or a performance that this is in. I should remember, I just read the whole account where it talks about where he started drinking whiskey again. Uh, anyway, this tune also shows up in all kinds of places, of course, but this is... Pretty close to Hibernian Muse's setting.
All right, and now let's do another tune for Herburnian Music Course. This is uh, Port Patrick. This is a tune I play on Highland Pipes. It's in Donald McDonald's collection under a different name, but I cannot recall the title offhand. Uh, anyway, so here's Port Patrick. And here is a tune that I am definitely going to do a whole episode on at some point. Um, uh, especially, it's sometimes it's called Lady in the Desert. This is a Kulin, um, but it's got some very similar vibes to Lady in the Desert. And uh, yeah, Keith sent me, Keith Sanger sent me a very long kind of as a piece version of Lady in the Desert, which makes me want to revisit that. And Kulin, Kulin shows up in just so many 18th century sources. It's clearly a very popular tune. Anyway, this is pretty close to Hibernian Muse's setting for it.
that's such a good error. Uh, okay, so our last tune is going to be one that's quite familiar to all of us uh, if you've been listening to the podcast lately. This is the Irish Hellboy. It was the intro tune for the first big chunk of season five. Uh, only recently changed it because of losing uh, my hard drive, but hard drive is back now. Um, I'm still going to record a new version of it. Cool thing about Irish Hellboy, like the version I played for the intro, I think is from Aird's collection. So Hoboy, remember, is, or, or Howboy, Hotboy, Hoboy, uh, is 18th century speak for oboe. And there really isn't a specific Irish version of a hobo. Uh, I was kind of asking around, and it doesn't seem to be one. The theory on traditional tune archive is that the Irish Hoboy is actually yet another name for Irish bagpipes, or Ellen pipes, or Union pipes, or um, those sorts of things. So it's possible that that's another name for it. Um, I was talking to Bill Hanneman about it, who you know has done a fair amount of research into historic piping and uh, pipe making, and he had never heard the term Irish hoboy thrown around to describe the instrument. So it's just kind of a theory. Maybe it'd take off, but I know it's a cracking tune. So uh, here is Irish hoboy on Ellen pipes. Uh, since the intro music, even though the tune might be about them, never featured uh, Ellen pipes. Uh, remember bring any kind of look through these collections on your own and you know if you want to share some tunes with people or just chat or listen you know come by that zoom session rscp on the facebook thing or send me an email at waytotwag at gmail.com and i'll get you the zoom link so you can come and hang out with us the last wednesday in october at 7 p.m u.s central time uh, yeah, if you want to support the podcast, go over to patreon.com slash waytotwag. Uh, there's bonus episodes over there, I think six or seven now, and uh, I get early access to episodes sometimes, not all the time, but if I'm down early, you'll get access to it. So like this episode will be up for probably three days before uh, it posts on the live feed. Um, and it's just a nice way to show that you support the podcast. So anyway, check that out and hope to see some people on the last Wednesday of October. And like I said, next week, I don't think we'll have an episode, uh, but we'll be back for Halloween. Uh, good, good Halloween episode after, after next week. All right. Cheers. Here's the Irish Hoboy from Hibernian Muse. <laughs>